You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Good morning, and I'd like to thank you all for being here this morning. As Keith said, my name is David, and uh, for those joining us online, thank you as well for committing to be a part of this family. I've been a part of Riverside since 2013, and although my beard is already drawing Social Security, the rest of me is only 44. I've been more or less a disciple of Jesus for the last 37 of those 44 years. And when I say more or less, I'm not speaking with my tongue in my cheek. I plan to return to this at the end, so stick a pin in it and wait, wait for that. I want to acknowledge that this passage that we're looking at this morning is likely to stir deep and possibly painful emotions in some of us may cause others of us to want to hide or to feel ashamed. I want you to know that I take this teaching very seriously and that I believe wholeheartedly, no matter how this message impacts you, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows who he's dealing with, and he knows how to transform minds and hearts. Let me also quickly say that This series has been phenomenal already, but we're really only able to scratch the surface in 25-ish minutes. So for those of you who might be interested in really going deeply on this, um, I would refer you to a book by a guy named Dallas Willard. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. Get it. I don't know if our libraries have it, but see if you can get a copy, borrow, don't steal, but borrow, beg, plead, whatever. See if you can get a copy and work through that. It's a book that I've read for the last decade, and I will read it the rest of my life uh, because there's that much in there. Uh, Join me in praying, please. Heavenly Father, I, I humble myself under your mighty hand, and I simply ask that you would speak through me to open hearts. Amen. If you can remember, three weeks ago, Amy brought us a fantastic teaching on Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. And if you really want to get a grip on these teachings and, and the entire sermon on the Mount, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to her message again, two or three or four times. Um, it will do you good, and it will help. And I want to echo the sentiment that this may well be the single, this this verses 17 through 20 may be the single most critical section of Scripture in the entire Bible. Jesus said that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I didn't say that. (laughs) I don't have the authority or the gravitas to say that, but the creator of all did. He did say that. I just want to reinforce what Amy taught us, that Jesus is not saying that surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees means being more Pharisaical than they were. That's not what that means. And he's also not talking about making it into heaven after you die. And then last week, Adam spoke a word that went straight into my heart. 
I have never stifled so many amens and preach-its as I did last week. I almost, I almost couldn't stay in my chair. It was amazing. The idea that Jesus is intensely interested in the kind of people we become is simply staggering. And I would argue that it is not likely you could spend too much time meditating on that. <clears throat> now, here we are in the depths of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. He's teaching his disciples about what life in the kingdom is like. And I'd like to draw your attention to the nature of his topics. He's dealing with ground-level, day-to-day, personal and relational interactions. He's not bringing high-handed theories. This isn't abstract stuff. This is on the ground. Me to you, you to you, person to person. It's really, really practical. And he does this by leading his students through a series of contrasts. Jesus, as the greatest and most intelligent teacher ever, is leading his disciples into a deeper understanding of life in the kingdom. And he uses these powerful contrasts to illustrate his teachings. For the rest of chapter 5, you're going to see Jesus making more and more contrasts. There are six of them in total. And at the very same, oh, he's contrasting between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of the kingdom of God. At the very same time, if you look, you'll see Jesus letting his students in on a particular secret, certainly here at the beginning. The Pharisees managed everything by appearances. Everything had to do with the external. What do I look like to other people? And there was some kind of broken equation. It's broken, but it was in, in their minds, it was an equation with righteousness. Jesus, on the other hand, teaches that kingdom righteousness is rooted in the invisible, in the internal world of the human heart and mind. And it is from there that righteous actions emerge into the external world. It's not vice versa. It's, it, it starts inside in the invisible first, and then the fruit comes from there. Last week, we saw the contrast between not murdering people a super good idea, and not even becoming angry at them, an even better idea. I, I, would, I would challenge somebody to find a murder that didn't start as anger and describe that. <clears throat> we were invited to see the person behind the prohibition. And that applies as much or more this week, as we will be looking at sexual righteousness. Before I launch us into our passage for today, I just want to say one more thing. This idea that Jesus brought to the forefront during his time on earth, the proclamation of the right now availability of the kingdom of God to any and all who want to enter into it. This is a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal. <laughs> Jesus talked about it from the moment he began his ministry all through those years. And check this out. Jesus even continued to teach about it and to proclaim the right now kingdom of God after his resurrection. Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. It would appear that the kingdom of God is something that we ought to take at least as seriously as Jesus did. Mostly because this is where all the conflicts happen. This is where all of the conflicts that we see in our own lives, in social media that Keith doesn't know anything about, on the news, all of it. It's in our own personal kingdoms and queendoms. Yes, you and I have our own realms, our own kingdoms, and that's on purpose. It's intended to be a good thing for us. In fact, it's the only way to be fully human, to have your own kingdom, your own queendom. These kingdoms consist of everything that makes us who we are, our souls, our minds, and our bodies. But sin, but sin. Sin enters the world, and our kingdoms get all junked up with confusion and anger, lust, contempt, revenge, hatred. The list goes on and on. We have an immense creative ability to be sinful. <laughs> Any person who can read a little history can see the trail of carnage and wreckage we humans, all humans, have left in the wake of our own personal empires. From the first two brothers to this morning, we've made a royal mess of things. So God, in his great wisdom and love, sent his son here to show us how we are to run our kingdoms properly. And one of his main methods for teaching was by inverting the upside-down broken ideas we think. Remember, when Satan came to attack Eve in the garden, he didn't hit her with a rock or a stick. He hit her with an idea, and she bought it. Sorry, I'm getting a little dry here. Okay, with that background in place, let's look at Matthew 5. 27 through 30, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to, be, to go into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's a pretty famous couple verses, and perhaps confusing to some. Uh, I know it confused me for quite a long time. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, I don't think he's just teaching about the wrongfulness of the act of adultery. His audience already knew that that was wrong. He's moving beyond the realm of action into the realm of the mind and the heart, which is where our intentions are found. Intention is the point where our actions are conceived, where they gestate and develop until they are born out in action. <laughs> now, before anyone gets more uncomfortable than maybe they already are, I want to help you understand what Jesus means by lust in this verse. Let me start by telling you what he does not mean. 
He does not mean that if you see someone who is attractive, you're lusting. He doesn't mean that. You don't need to go lock yourself in a cave so you can't see anybody. He does not mean that if you see someone who is attractive and you think to yourself, that person is attractive, that you're lusting. That's not what he means. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking about the act of your will. That seeing a person you think attractive, you then use that image to mentally cultivate lust for them in your mind and your heart. Lust is an action of your will, of my will. Directed by us intentionally to use the sight or the image of another person's body to stimulate our sexual desires. That's what lust is. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. This is important because one of the fundamental elements of being created in the image of God is that we are agents. We can be responsible. As unpopular as that may be in some circles, we can be responsible. We get to practice by being responsible for ourselves, what we think. So, this is what Jesus means when he says, he who looks at a woman to lust for her. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about an act of the will, intentional. It is this cultivated human lust that fuels much of the worst kinds of evil in the world. Human trafficking, all forms of pornography, adultery, pedophilia, incest, prostitution. Last time I checked, these are pretty bad things. And every single one is fueled by cultivated human lust. So that is what Jesus is talking about here. Who's he talking to? Contrary to a seemingly easy assumption, this teaching is not just for men. It wasn't then. It certainly isn't now. Jesus is teaching us about lust, and he's speaking to anyone whose inner life is impacted or ruled by it. This is certainly applicable to men who can be overrun by their desires for physical intercourse. But it's just as applicable to women whose souls can be dominated by the desire to be lusted after, to be the center of attention. In both cases, it leads to destructive actions in our lives. It's a teaching for all of us. So, here we have the second of six contrasts in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Not committing adultery is a really good idea, and Jesus is not excusing it. But he's aiming for a much deeper place. He's digging to the root of the issue by exposing the false teaching of the Pharisees for the self-deception that it is. Here it is. The righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee. Go back and read verse 20. A lot. Said that righteousness is a matter of what you do. Intent doesn't matter, only the action. So long as you don't actually do the deed, it doesn't matter that you've already consented to it in your heart and that you would be ready to do it if the circumstances were right. You could get away with it. And then here comes Jesus. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now Jesus brings the contrast. He teaches the righteousness of the kingdom. Your bodily actions are not the only indicator of sin or of righteousness. You can look externally righteous and still be the kind of person who's full of sin and wickedness already consenting to do the sin the moment the right opportunity comes up. Intent absolutely matters because it's the source of your action. Your intentions are the source of your action. If you didn't have the intent, you'd never do the thing. You don't go out to eat unless you intend to go out to eat. Intent drives everything. Our sexual desires were designed and intended by God to be a blessing to us and to our mate. Jesus is fully aware of this, and he's no prude. So he teaches his disciples that righteousness in the kingdom of God includes our sexual nature also. It's a deeply interpersonal, and it is completely practical. In the kingdom of the heavens, being right sexually is having sexual desires which are under the control of your own will, which is obedient to the will of God, and a will that does not desire to look at a a person in order to cultivate lust in yourself. That is sexual righteousness in the kingdom. And when we get there, we can express that sexual righteousness. In short, the Pharisees taught that if you do not have sex with someone who is not your spouse, you are righteous before God. You're good. Jesus taught that righteousness before God, to be righteous before God, your heart and mind have to be transformed so that you no longer want to use people to gratify yourself. If you think Jesus was being allegorical or metaphorical, think again. As I said before, I think he was being very, very practical. I don't think this is a theory. I think it's practical. I think the way we look at each other matters to God. If you think that what Jesus expects is impossible, you're correct. If you think you can meet his standard of righteousness on your own initiative. If you think you can meet that standard of righteousness outside the kingdom of God, I think you're in for a surprise. But it's not a surprise, because we all know. (laughs) But entering into the kingdom, you will find unimaginable power, new understanding, loving mercy, and transforming knowledge, all of which, by the gifting of the Holy Spirit, can make you exactly this kind of person. All right, let's move on. Does Jesus want you to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands? I actually, so quick aside, um, I had thought about bringing a pair of channel locks and a saw to have up here for those that wanted to buy into that option. Uh, But I thought maybe that's crossing the line. I don't know. So does he want you to cut off your hands or your eyes, pull out your eyeball? 
or both of them probably be the way to go. Um, I don't think he does. I don't think that's what's. I don't think that's what's going on here. He knows that even if you did, wouldn't help you. Still be full of lust. <laughs> Still be full of unrighteousness. Your lusting isn't resident in your eyes or in your hands. It's in the invisible realm of your heart and your mind. Jesus here is using a teaching mechanism, which in logic is called a reductio ad absurdum. It's a term which means a method of proving the falsity of a premise by showing that its logical consequence is absurd or contradictory. That's what a reductio ad absurdum is. And that's what I think Jesus is doing here. He's refuting the premise of the Pharisees' teaching, whose idea it was that sin was in your members. And therefore, as long as you didn't break the law with your body, you were righteous. And Jesus comes along, and you can almost see a smirk on the corner of his mouth when he essentially says of that idea, well, if you are correct about your eye or your hand causing you to sin, it really would be better for you to yank that sucker out and throw it in the fire. It really would be better for you to cut off your hand. Because according to the logic of your teaching, those parts of your body really are going to hell. And it would be better if your whole body didn't end up there. The most important word in the phrase I just said is if. If you're right, this is what you should do. But Jesus says, you're not right. (laughs) You're wrong. To the Pharisees, to this idea that righteousness and unrighteousness is somehow tied up only in our bodies. This idea that as long as you look righteous, you're righteous. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. So a, a question, rhetorical Did it ever occur to us that one of the most loving things Jesus did for people was to tell them when they were wrong? And then to truthfully and often gently point them in the right direction. No, it's not here. Look there. What is Jesus primarily concerned with here in this passage about lust? He did not desire then, nor does he desire now for his disciples to be deceived into thinking that goodness or righteousness lies in the merely external. Those externals are important. Adultery is bad. Pornography will wreck your life. But they're not the source. Those externals are not the source of goodness. They're not the source of good fruit in your life. The life of Christ himself, which is only available to us in the kingdom, is the source of true goodness. Jesus is primarily concerned with what kind of people we become. A second time I mentioned it. I think Adam said it six or seven times last week. It would be a great thing to stick on your bathroom window, or your mirror, not your window, your mirror. Jesus really cares about what kind of person I become. That would be really, really great. And this brings me right back to what I said earlier about the kingdom being available right now. You see, I agree with that idea we looked at at the very beginning of this series, specifically that we really are waiting for the kingdom to come fully. I believe with my whole being that there will come a time when Jesus returns to this earth in glory and power and presence, and that when he assumes the government of this world upon his shoulders, we finally will really see the kingdom come. 
like we have prayed for thousands of years, we being all of us disciples. But there's a risk here that we misunderstand this kingdom awaiting idea to mean that we must merely sit back and wait for that to happen. Being a disciple is not a passive sport. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And that's not what Andrew said those few weeks ago, and it it wasn't even what he implied, but it can subtly slip into our minds. The proclamation Jesus makes is that any who want to enter his kingdom may do so, and they may do so starting now. Eternity is already now, or it's not eternity, because eternity can't start later, or it's not eternity. It goes forever in both directions. Here's why I believe that. I want to humbly say to you married men, it is not God's will for your wife to continue to suffer the soul-crushing indignity of your pornography addiction or your roving eyes that linger on other women's bodies for the rest of her earthly life. It is not his will that anyone should suffer a lifetime of that shame. Forgiveness and restoration can happen, but you need your mind and your heart to be transformed in this life. Like we heard last week, there is a person behind that prohibition, and you made her promises. And I want to humbly say to you married women, it is not God's will for your husband to continue to suffer the heart-rending shame and injustice he experiences when you act like or present yourself in a way to attract the lust and the attention of other men. It is not his will that anyone should suffer that for their lifetime. Again, forgiveness and reconciliation can happen after you turn to Jesus and let him transform your heart and mind. There is a person behind that prohibition. And you made him promises. And to you singles of every stripe, I want to say to you, it is not God's will for you to use people as a means to excite and cultivate your lust or desires, either by what they look like or by what they could offer you or how they make you feel. All of these things, when we do them, reduce others to mere objects for our use. They poison our own mind and they show us the real situation in our kingdom. Now, having said that, allow me to follow up by reminding you that we have a heavenly Father who is full of grace. What is grace? Grace is a form of power that I receive when I bring my whole life into the kingdom of God and which empowers me to do the things I need to do but can't do on my own. When I bring my life into the kingdom of God, I am not on my own. So, he doesn't want you to gouge out your eyes or cut off your hands. He wants you to willingly bring your kingdom into his kingdom. He wants you to surrender it to him there. And he wants to teach you and me how to rule our kingdoms the way he would rule them if he were us. And as that happens over time, with our efforts meeting God's grace, we can become the kind of people 
who would not commit adultery, even if the circumstances pre presented themselves such that we could get away with it. Why? Because we no longer want to. We no longer want to. In the kingdom, you can come to the knowledge, not just by mental assent, but by personal experience, that righteousness grows from a person whose heart no longer intends to use other people as a means to cultivate their lust. Righteousness is the fruit of intending and learning to see another person as God's lovely child and to love them with agape love. In the kingdom, you, this, you're going to hear this phrase, in the kingdom you can be truly free from the desire to use people. You can be healed from the wounds of being used. And you can be loved and love others with true agape love. In short, you can be made good. Now, you may think me unfair to do all this talking and not leave any time to discuss the how. And I meant to start my timer and I forgot I was nervous. And perhaps you'd be right. But it seemed to me extremely important to make it clear what Jesus is doing here and what he's inviting us into. Beginning with knowledge is very important, as Jesus clearly demonstrates. I mentioned in my opening that for 37 years I have been more or less a disciple of Jesus. I asked you to remember that. I don't know if you did, but I reminded you. And that's exactly what I meant. At seven years old, in the basement of a tiny church in Holland, Michigan, I had an undeniable conversion experience where the regenerating life of Jesus flooded into my soul and illuminated my utter need for him and his desire to love me and to be my king. And this has deep meaning for me still to this day. But I did not in that moment magically become a fully developed disciple of Jesus. I didn't. That process, which is absolutely essential to living life in the kingdom right now, requires an interactive, real-time relationship with the man Jesus who will teach me how to run every part of my kingdom the way he would run it if he were me. That is where the transformation happens. No part of who we are is exempted, and it happens best if more or less becomes more and more. This is not a passive process. It requires seriously intentional action by me as an individual, by you as an individual. As disciples in the kingdom, we can learn to live comfortably in the truth that we are not the center of the universe, we are not the creators of reality, and that our feelings are not the only or even the most reliable indicators of what is good. But instead, we can learn to relax, to truly find peace and rest in the knowledge and the experience of an intimate relationship to the king who has reality firmly in his grasp, who knows all that we need before we ask for it, and who actually knows what will be for our best good. And what is more, he is just dying to lavish that good on us. I'll close with this. 
if the band wants to come back up, you can get ready. The word Christians or Christian appears only three times in the New Testament. The word disciple appears over 260 times in the New Testament. They're different words, and they mean different things. We in the West have inherited a faith tradition that allows for a person to claim to be a Christian but not be a disciple of Jesus. And this, I think, is largely why, in terms of things like pornography use, sexual addiction, divorce, and many other evils, the church looks almost no different than the world. I hope that bothers you as much as it bothers me. To enter the kingdom, which is available right now, we must become disciples of Jesus, the living king who rules that kingdom. That is simply reality. G.K. Chesterton put it this way, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The ideal that he's talking about there is discipleship to Jesus. I want to invite you to think deeply about the contrast that Jesus uses to show us what reality is and where true righteousness is and isn't found. No one here will compel you to believe anything I've said today. Compelling people to believe things is not what Christ or his disciples do. But these symbols, which we're getting ready to take, symbols of his broken body and his poured out blood, do seem to compel us. If nothing else, they compel us to remember that speaking the truth, that loving people enough to tell them when they had the wrong idea and that inviting them into the reality of the kingdom of heaven, these things got him killed. But he trusted his heavenly father more, even in death, more than he trusted in the false realities of us, of men. As the band plays, prepare your hearts. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.